Empire podcast this week. We spiel about the Berg. Yes, Simon Pegg, star of Ready Player One, pops in to talk about his time working with Steven Spielberg on that very movie. But also, we spiel with the Berg. Yes, for the first time ever, Steven Spielberg pops into the pod booth to talk about his new movie and loads more besides. All that plus usual news and nonsense on the movie podcast that got the duet last week with Hugh Jackman. Not, though, on a version of Call me by your name Call me, call me, call me by your can name we, no, Oh, yeah! No, It's happening. It's happening. No. It's, it's happening real. again. It's never going to stop, Helen. Never, ever going to stop. That, that, that song is in your head now. I it's mean, in your head. it's really gone already, thankfully. Really? Yeah. Call me no, by your name No, 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 no. It's on its way to becoming Christmas number one. Anyway... Hello Pod, I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to the Empire Podcast, which this week is brought to you by Rakuten TV, your cinema at home. Rakuten TV releases Hollywood movies direct to your smart TV or device with no commitments, just in case you were wondering. Uh, all you have to do is rent or buy your favourite movie and you can do so whenever you like. Uh, and with the widest 4K herder, hurt, hurt, herder, is that right? Am I spelling that right? Oh, HDR. And with the widest 4K HDR film catalogue for smart TVs. TVs? TVs, maybe? TVs! Hmm, I'll get this right. With the widest 4K HDR film catalogue for your smart TVs in Europe, Rakuten TV strives to provide the best audio and image quality, Helen O'Hara. I can see you looking at me cynically going, there's no way they can, they can provide the best video and audio quality. And yet here we are. And here we are. And they deliver a realistic cinematic experience in the comfort of your own home. This is true. If you watch a film on Rakuten TV, a tall bloke will come along and sit down in front of you. That is their guarantee. No, wait, no, that's that's not the case. But anyway, glad to have my board. Amen. Uh, this is the second time we recorded this podcast. Hurrah. So we should absolutely nail it this time, guys. Yesterday was a good rehearsal, but I thought we were lacking in some, some areas. Uh, let's see if we can bring it home today. Uh, I'm joined today by two colleagues of such lethal cunning who have given up their free time to be here with us once again. First up is our geek queen, Helen O'Hara, who has just returned from Iceland. That's where all the mums go. But you went there as well, Helen. I did, yes. Yeah. But despite not being a mum, I went to the actual Iceland, though, though not the not the supermarket. Fun fact: Fun they fact. appear to have an Iceland in Iceland, which mm-hmm. delighted me. They Very also better. have like many, many waterfalls and glaciers and hot springs and you know geysers. In fact, wow. The word comes from a particular geyser, geysir. Geysir. Oh wow! Look at that. Not Look from that. Danny Dyer. No, apparently not. Although I assume he's visited. I wonder if he's ever been to Iceland. It would blow his mind. There's geysers everywhere. What's going on with that? Look at that muppet. That's, um, I'm sure, very much how his visit would have gone has, had he visited. Mm. Anyway, it's a beautiful country, incredibly expensive. Start saving now, go in 10 years, I reckon. Yeah. But did I was there for work, um, so hey. <laughs> did you see any humanoid aliens pouring small pots of black goo down giant waterfalls and creating huge spirals of, of infinite life? Um, <laughs> you know, I did see an, an enormously tall white dude um, and Isn't then, then like in a bunch more of them because that was there we go. Right. You just trod all over sorry, my joke. That's sorry. fine. No, that's okay. How tall were they? Nine um, feet tall. Ten, ten feet tall. Nine, nine feet and completely nine feet naked. Yeah. Wow, Helen O'Hara, what have you been up to? I'm kidding. What have you been up to? I'm kidding. I was at the Blue Lagoon. The most naked everybody got was like swimming sh- trunks. Bloody hell! Sure, uh, you're joining the new podcast, Sexy Times with Helen O'Hara. <laughs> 
Listen to it after dark. Good lord, it's no. a bit, it's a bit racy. I'm, I think it's a bit too racy for Ben Travis. How are you? I, I mean, I feel moderately uncomfortable about that conversation, but yeah. um, but other than that, I'm all good. Yeah. yeah, you know, back for round two. Yeah, how did you think Christie went? I thought it, it was good with room for improvement. So we'll see what we can do with 2.0. I think we're already off to a bad start. Uh, I should explain what happened here, Steve. We recorded it uh, as ever in the studio here and there was a technical issue. There was a, a hissing and a some sort of weird on the uh, on the microphone that uh, according to you guys only I can hear but uh, trust me it was it was there. So we we decided to come back in today because uh, we want uh, we want this podcast to be the best it can be, which has been my ethos since the beginning. Sure. <laughs> I mean, I may have been speaking parcel tongue at various bits yesterday, which could explain some of the hissing. I will try and keep that to a low today. <laughs> yeah, thank, thanks, Harry. All right, okay. So, uh, we had a hell of a week, didn't we? We we, uh, we should talk about the Empire Awards, first of all. The, the Rakuten TV Empire Awards, which took place last week. At Sunday, the, uh, yes. Uh, Sunday, yeah, at the Roundhouse. That was a lot of fun. Did you guys enjoy it? Did you have a good time? What did you do? Who did you see? Who did you speak to? It was amazing. I, I mean, I was working for quite a bit of it, so I was doing the live blog online, uh, but that meant I was keeping tabs of everyone who was arriving, watching the whole ceremony, and, God, the, the guest roster. Like, I had no um, part in kind of getting people down to the awards, so I feel like I can say... It was an amazingly starry list of people who I was um, very pleased to be in the same room as, breathing the same air. And Helen, you got to speak to some of them on the red carpet, right? Yeah, I decided the red carpet interviews uh, and the arrivals as, as sort of Facebook Live things. Those are all up in kind of, like, I don't know, like 10 chunks, but each mm-hmm. chunk has several interviews. I think mm-hmm. I did... Um, 25, I think I counted oh afterwards, wow. celebrity interviews in about an hour, an hour uh, which was exciting. So, like, Daisy Ridley was in there, Ryan Johnson, Edgar Wright. Yeah. Um, Daphne Keane. Daphne Keane, Stephen Mangan, Armando Iannucci. Wow. Um, it was, Stephen Mangan was there. It was a lot of fun. Yes. And I, but we barely fit in the same frame. Oh, Stephen Merchant. Stephen Merchant, not Stephen Mangan. Yeah, he's a bit taller. He's very tall. Yeah, you don't often see them in the same room together. He could, they could be the same person. I feel like only if one of them's on stilts. One could be, it could be like a Shazam type thing. It could be a Shazam type. Or Stephen Manga goes Shazam, and then suddenly he, he's, he's free tall with a, with a West Country accent. Ben, what did, what did you get up to? What did you, what did you like about the night? I liked getting to be in the same room as Steven Spielberg, Mark Hamill. Daisy Ridley, Brian Johnson, seeing them all give their get their awards. Also, some of the acceptance speeches on the night, they're all on YouTube. You can go and, um, on Empire's YouTube page and watch them. Um, people like Amara Santi was the Empire inspiration. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she mm-hmm. absolutely lived up to that in the speech that yeah. she gave on the night. It was, it was beautiful. Um, she made my wife cry. Yeah, she's fantastic. Yeah, she Not did. because she didn't, she didn't do anything. She didn't punch and kick my wife or <laughs> stamp in her toe or anything like that. She, uh, her words were so moving that... Uh, she made my wife cry. Yeah, well, it was a it was a good night, very very good night, a lot of fun, uh, and a good thing about the the Empire Awards. Uh, we'll talk about them now, so we don't talk about about them in the news section because we believe me, we have enough Empire plugging to come in that section. Uh, was I just love the spread of the awards? Obviously, we have the discretionary awards that we that we give out ourselves. So Mark Hamill was uh, icon. Steven Spielberg, I've heard of a couple of his films. He got Legend of Our Lifetime, I'm a Santa Inspiration. Uh, Edgar Wright was the first person to receive the newly minted Empire Visionary Award uh, to go along with his his own Empire Inspiration Award that he won a few years ago. And that's great. Those 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 discretionary awards are fantastic. But, but the fact that the rest of the awards are voted for by 
the great British public is is awesome. And I have to say, one of the few things that the great British public have got right over the last <laughs> few years, you know, so you got Hugh Jackman winning Best Actor for Logan. I mean, it's this a sort of performance is incredible in that. Yeah, it's the sort of performance that just gets overlooked in the uh, in the run up to you know the the, the Oscars and the Golden Globes and, and your whatnots and uh, God's Own Country winning Best British Film, uh, earning a hard stare from Paddington in the process. I'm sure, but I love Paddington too. But yeah, it's hard to quibble with God's Own Country. Josh O'Connor winning Best Male Newcomer, Daphne Keane winning Best Female Newcomer. You know, and the awards been been spread around as well. So you have Get Out, and you have Star Wars: The Last Jedi, and Wonder Woman all winning awards. Death of awards. Stalin, yeah. Death of Stalin. Stalin. Yeah. yeah. You know, I I really like that spread. I think it's a very very good spread that acknowledges commercial cinema, but also art house British independent cinema as well. So more power to his elbow. Okay. Yeah, some of the video clips that we saw on the night and the montages and stuff as well really hit home. It, it was an amazing year last year for, for big films, small films, everything in between. It was uh, an incredible year for cinema, so it was great to recognise that. All right, that's time now for a question. And uh, Ben, you have the question, don't you? I, I, last week I tasked you with finding a question on Facebook. I didn't have it in the rehearsal yesterday and I don't have it today either. So I'm still badly prepared. Um, but we'll, we'll get it right tomorrow. We'll be, we're going to come back in every day over the weekend just until we get this right. And it's from Timon Singh. It is. It from is from Timon Singh. Singh. On Facebook, yes. I did troll through Facebook. You did. On the one week that everyone is deleting their Facebook accounts. <laughs> Can't imagine why. And the question was, with Pacific Rim Uprising coming out this week, what sequels are we surprised have happened and what sequels that haven't happened would we like to see? So a bit cheeky, having two questions for the price of one. But uh, we answered this question, can I just say, brilliantly, and maybe even a little movingly, yesterday, uh, a single tear rolled down my cheek. So no so pressure. We've got to try and beat that. We've got to try and beat it. Okay, well, I, I feel like my answers come into a few different categories on this. So sequels that we never got, most of mine are actually sequels to sequels, where You've had a second one and it's great and it already proves that having a sequel is is worth it, but there was never a third entry. Um, so the big one that always jumps out is is Hellboy 2. I would mm-hmm, have loved mm-hmm. to see Guillermo del Toro's Hellboy 3. Yeah. And I'm pleased that they're rebooting it just to get Hellboy back on the big screen, but especially in the wake of The Shape of Water's Oscar wins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With the clout that, that del Toro would have in, in Hollywood at the moment, the the option really kind of has passed by now uh, for for him to finish his trilogy. So that's a bit of a shame. Um, a trilogy which never happened. Twenty three Jump Street. I know we got the amazing montage at the end of Twenty Two Jump Street. Um, and those are all canon. Which are all canon. So what is is Twenty Three? Is that the space one? In the I can't remember in the big montage at the was end. That the doctors was it medical? It school? might be the medical one. But um, I mean the Lord and Miller. They take idea like if a sequel is a bad enough idea, doing a trilogy is an even worse idea, and it could have made for an even better third film. This one film. could be darker. Ooh, always darker, <laughs> moodier, more personal. You know, yeah. Someone's going to die in this one, haven't they? Yeah, yeah. That's a that's a hill to die on, isn't it? <laughs> Channing Tatum should sure literally die on Jonah Hill. <laughs> oh no! Oh, okay, I'm with you now. You see? Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. You see the clever oh, yeah, wordplay? Yeah. No, I don't see any clever wordplay. No. You heard the clever wordplay, though, I didn't. didn't you? Did no. Um, so I'm going to give the same answer I did, gave yesterday. So but, boring but the two people in the room. No, it's fine. But hopefully entertaining the troops. There are two the, the, the sequels that surprised me. There are two more Jarheads. And I am genuinely astonished by this. They have nothing to do, as far as I can see, with the first Jarhead, which was, of course, the Sam Mendes, Jake Gyllenhaal film. But there are two more 
warry movies. Yes. And they exist. And that just takes me back. And at um, least one of them stars our good podcast friend, Scott Atkins, who will be guesting on this very podcast in a couple of weeks' time. There you go. Well, we can ask him about it and try and find out more, I suppose. Yeah, I could have had a time machine. The interview was done in October. Okay, maybe not then. So, uh, <laughs> so, and yeah. uh, the sequel I would like to see is a film that has not been written um, and probably never will be. Um, but of course, The Princess Bride, if you mm. read the 25th anniversary version of the book, which I'm sure we all have, and actually everyone should because it's brilliant. Um, at the very end, there is the first chapter of the sequel, um, and it is called Buttercup's Baby, and it is called The Death of Someone, that I won't say because it's upsetting. And and it, it, it continues the story of The Princess Bride. So I'm thinking animation. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking the original voice cast return. I feel like somebody out there somewhere can do an Andre the Giant voice. Quite possibly, Aww. and I'm not entirely kidding here, I I reckon Arnold Schwarzenegger can probably do an Andre the Giant impression. They were friends. They wrestled together. I feel like it could work. Do you think? I don't know why I, f- I think this, but I do. I mean, we discussed last week in the podcast that Arnie is a better actor than people give him credit for, but I'm not sure voices are his forte. But maybe he just hasn't had the chance to show it. So I would like to see Buttercup's Baby, and I would like the title of chapter one to be wrong. Wrong. Please tell me it's not It's called The Death of Somebody, and I don't want somebody to know. Ah, The Death of Little Lip. What? The the Death of Fitzy Bomb? What? Who? I don't know the Princess Bride that well. You should. Uh, how just, are we even in a in a room together? I have it in my contract yeah. that I should never be in a room with somebody who doesn't know the Princess Bride well. Inconceivable this is an outrage! Hey, there it is. It's true. It's true. I don't know the Princess Bride that well. What are you going to do, Helen? What are you going to do? I'm, I'm between s- you and the door. What are I'm you going to do? Sit you down in front of one of those clockwork orange machines with the eye things uh-huh. again. Yes, and make you watch it on repeat <laughs> until you have it by heart. Unbelievable. I look forward to that. <laughs> Sorry, I'm busy that night. Uh, I'm, going, I'm going. I'll throw in a couple. Uh, the, the sequel I was surprised to see most recently is Alien Covenant because Prometheus didn't do that well at the box office, and I think that was the the power of Ridley Scott going, "Go on, give us another one. Give us another one. Give us another one." Uh, I don't know if he'll be able to pr- repeat that trick, given that Alien Covenant made less than Prometheus at the box office and was also a big old pile of poo. But hey. sorry, it's an interesting pile of poo. Is it? It's like the one in Jurassic Park. That? No, that's really <laughs> harsh. <laughs> uh, I guess I'm surprised to see Pacific Rim Uprising as well as a sequel. Uh, you know, again, it just got to that threshold, that $400 million uh, figure, which seems to be the magic number to trigger sequels uh, worldwide. Uh, we discussed on yesterday's show, but we haven't so far. Huntsman, Winter's yeah, War. Yeah, that was on my list of just yeah. like that. Okay, we're gonna do an, we're gonna do another one of those. Like it, it made a, a relatively respectable amount of money, but by the time the second one came out, I think it was quite a few years later as well. That it just seemed like any the, the whole sort of um, retelling of yeah of like fairy tale fantasy stories in that style had already seemed to basically die away by the time that came around. Also, I don't know how much love there is for the first movie, which is serviceable. It's got some decent visuals, mm. but I. Do you really hear anyone talking about it? It, it, it smacked of contractual obligation. Uh, I think the big problem that that film had and that actually Maleficent had and that a few especially fantasy and sci-fi movies have in recent years is they spend so long establishing their world that you're just bored by the time anything happens. <laughs> and uh, I feel like that the, both like those a, films Like The Princess Bride? No, actually literally the opposite. Ooh, yeah. I, how bloody dare you! Like when uh, when Fozzie Wig 
and no. gets into that big battle with no Blundell Blart. Literally, no? not, like this is so unfair. This is like the criticism of something that the Princess Bride specifically is designed not to be. How dare you? This is an outrage. <laughs> Obviously, this is a podcast you can't here. see. Chris has the biggest shit-eating grin right now, how, just at stoking. How are you fire. not saying? Uh, I don't think those means those words mean what you think they mean. How are you? You know, because they're not even of, words with meanings. Yeah, well, it's like when you said right. Okay, I have to say say something. I during the awards on Sunday night, right? Chris used the word. Scrumtralescent, yes, like five times, uh-huh. which was I, I thought confusing. Uh-huh. Um, that was, that and, was intent, and that is like a case of you know you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means, but yes. these are just you're just saying like names, so I can't well, say that they don't mean what you think they mean because those are not meanings; they're names. But I'm guessing that you're if I keep to set up the joke wrong, what I'm trying to do, Helen. <laughs> If you would let me talk for a second, <laughs> is I'm trying to guess the names of the characters in The Princess Bride, and I think I'm getting close. Am I right? No. What about um, in Inigo Toyota? I mean, I'll give you like half a mark, <laughs> and then I'm taking the half mark away for the bit you got wrong. All right. Okay. Anyway. Anyway. Um, so I think you, I think you have to strike when the iron is hot with the sequel. I think, which is why I'm going to be watching Pacific Rim, uh, Pacific Rim Uprising and not Pacific Rim Apocalypse, which I keep wanting to say. Uh, the box office. No, I think take. it's Pacific Rim Retribution. Is it Retribution? Or is it Annihilate? Who knows? <laughs> who knows? Uh, I'll be watching the box office take with great interest. And I'll tell you who else will be watching them with great interest. Uh, the people behind World War Z Part yeah. 2. Because that now we're hitting into five, six year territory, and for a sequel, now you're getting into the kind of you're getting into the territory where you have to remind people what the first film is when you're marketing mm. the, the the second one, and that's never good. The first film is, you know, like it literally lifted five pieces of information from the book, so at least they have more to go <laughs> from. I guess true. it did, and that's including the title. But who doesn't want to see Jerry Lane come back? <laughs> oh, you remember his name? Of course oh, I remember, remember his name. Jerry Lane. He is the hero for our times. He's also one of the very few heroes who is also a destination. So <laughs> there's a Jerry Lane, I think, in Texas. I, I looked it up once. You it have looks nothing way like Brad too much Pitt. time on your hands. I, uh, yeah, anyway. Uh, and sequels I'd like to see that haven't been made yet. Uh, just off the top of my head. Sure. Uh, Drive Me to Hell. I'd like to see that. I would yes, love to see absolutely. an Evil Dead 4. And I'd like to see Hot Fuzz 2, Pigs in the City, which I know is a, is a gag that uh, Edgar Wright and Simon Pegg have been talking about for, for years, and they say they'll never, ever do it, but the title is so good. And wouldn't you love to see Danny Butterman let loose in, in London? But you know what the sequel I would really like to see, Helen? What's that, Chris? He said spontaneously. <laughs> yeah, yeah, about 10 years ago, this movie came out. Ages. Do you, mem- do you remember... Um, oh, that guy, he got in some trouble off screen. Robert Downey Jr., all right. Oh, yeah. So he was in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. He yeah, was in Weird Science weird back science. in the day. Science, yeah. He was in an episode of Ally McBeal. A couple of episodes of Ally McBeal. You're right. Absolutely mm. right. Well, he was in this film where he played this guy, this, um, how do I describe him? He was, um, he was a billionaire, a genius, a playboy, and a philanthropist, if you can believe such a thing. Yeah, a bit overegged. Come on. He built this metal suit and he got into it and he fought another bloke. And that was such, I think it was called Metal Man. And it was such a good film. Mm. And we never saw what became of that character or any of the other characters that were That's related shame, to that character. It? Yeah. What, what was it called? Can you remember? Metal Man. Metal Man. It was called Metal, Metal Man. Metal Man? Metallo? I don't yeah. know. 
Uh, yeah, vague memories. I mean, I remember it being kind of fun, yeah. you know. But it's not like it was the start of a shared universe that spans like 18 films or anything. So, yeah. you know, that's a bit of a shame, isn't it? Yeah. Imagine if the 19th was coming out in about three or four weeks. Wouldn't that be the most <laughs> ludicrously exciting thing? <laughs> If you want to have your question read out on the Empire Podcast, you can do so via a number of methods. We are at Empire Magazine on Twitter. You can use the hashtag Empire Podcast. Your chances are we won't see it because we're really lazy. Uh, you can email us as well, podcast at empireline.com, or you can, as Timon Singh did to his credit this week, Facebook us. Um, or, or just, we've already got your data, so it's all good. All right, let's move on. Uh, to our first guest this week and he is making his pod debut no of course he's not I think he holds a record for the highest number of podcast appearances he's one of our favourite actors and writers uh, from Shaun of the Dead to Hot Fuzz to The World's End and he's worked with Steven Spielberg a number of times now first of all on The Adventures of Tintin Secret of the Unicorn then again on Paul and now on Ready Player One he is of course Simon Pegg uh, who actually presented the uh, Legend of Our Lifetime Award to Steven Spielberg this week. Uh, I went along to have a chat with him in a London hotel room this week, and we had a lot of fun. And you know what? I hope you guys do too. Enjoy. Delighted to be joined on the Empire Podcast once again. We just can't get rid of the guy. It's um, Simon... Hang on. Peg? Correct. Yes! Excellent. Uh, Simon Pegg, star of Ready Player One. I think you've been on the podcast more than anyone else. Have I? I think you have. It's because I live nearby. <laughs> I'm easy to get. So uh, we tend to bring you a gift every time, oh, yeah. a little trophy to commemorate that. A little busy today, so I didn't have a chance to pick anything up from the office I knew or on the way. that empty promise when you gave me that cup that time. Yeah, but... I do have some ketchup yes! that I picked up from outside. So I know this is the last interview before lunch. Thank you can you. spread that ketchup and you can think of me as you do so. I will in so many ways. I should, I should have got some mayonnaise for the extra, <laughs> <laughs> extra sexual, sexual frisson. Lovely. Well, I'm really uh, never going to eat that. Uh, but it's good to have you here. And uh, nice right. fresh from the, the Empire Awards last night where you presented Legend of Our Lifetime to... Steven Spielberg. I did. It was a lovely thing to be able to do. It was pretty And amazing. after that amazing introduction, because he had a lovely introduction from you guys, and then there was that fantastic video uh, package of, of everyone saying how much they loved him, and then yeah. I went up and read my adoring citation. <laughs> and when he came up on stage and everyone stood up, I said to him as he, as he sort of came up, I said, how did that feel? Just as he gave me a hug and he whispered in my ear, fucking great. <laughs> I had no idea the Berg swore. <laughs> he was sweetness and light in my interview in the podcast. He'll probably uh, he'll probably deny he ever said that. But. Yeah, of course. Well, that was just what you heard. Yes, he might have said something completely. Yeah, he said flippin' great. <laughs> flippin' groovy. It was so groovy, Simon. But Spielberg, you're one of the few people to have written dialogue for Steven Spielberg when yes. he played himself in Paul. Yes. Uh, and you've worked with him now for how long? Uh, I think the Nine first years, time 10, was, well, I, really, I guess Band of Brothers, uh, yeah, which uh, he produced. We didn't. Into, he, Phil Alden Robinson directed the episode I was in. But, was he on uh, set at any point? Yeah, yeah. Okay, um, but properly in two thousand and nine with uh, with Tintin. Um, okay, you know when we actually were slightly more one on one. Yeah, director actor. And uh, looking at the way you guys interact, it seems that you are beyond that. Fuck me! It's Steven Spielberg face. <laughs> Which I, I don't think I could ever get to, no matter how much time I spent with him. I don't know if I am. I mean, there's an odd thing now whereby 
On the last day of Ready Player One, I think I hugged him three times when I was leaving. <laughs> and even to the point where he's going, oh, we're going, what's another one? You know, kind of thing. I, I, I just, I really love him and I love him because I have such a massive respect for him as, a, as a, an artist and as someone who's had such a, a huge influence on my love of cinema. I'm very grateful to him for everything that he's done, you know. And, um, and it is wonderful to get to, you know, um, interact with him on a daily basis at work. But I don't ever lose that sort of excitement when I see him. And, and also, it's nice to sort of manage to get to a point of, of low-level hysteria so that you can just be with him and just hang out and talk and, and not go crazy when he... You know, because all of his anecdotes are related to extraordinary moments in film history. That's just yeah. his life. Yeah, he's not. He never crows. He's never sort of like... I, would, I remember the time when he'll just go, oh, yeah, I remember me and uh, Kubrick were. And you're like, oh, here we go. And he'll tell you a story about, you know, casting Scatman Carruthers or, or Melinda Dillon in, uh, in Close Encounters. Or, or he, he told this incredible story from the set of Jaws to me and Ty Sheridan one day. Because that's just his life. Yeah. So you just have to not squeal. You just have to sit and listen and kind of go, <laughs> yeah, that must have been great. Okay, so, <laughs> you know, pretend that you're not, you're not you're not experiencing incredible sense of of privilege and sort of uh access you know and do you you then go well let me tell you about episode two we know where you live (laughs) let me tell you but he's always really you know he wants to know about stuff that you know he's very obviously he's he consumes films so he he he'll mention something you've done that you haven't assumed that he's watched you know and he'll go oh yeah really well he gave me he, he when when he phoned up about this it was because i think He'd seen Rogue Nation and he, he was, uh, you know, he just said, oh, I, I saw Rogue Nation and, and I really enjoyed your performance. And uh, you put me in mind of, you know, this character in, in this, in Ready Player One. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's weird to think that he watches things as well. <laughs> well, that's the thing. I read that he casts people almost purely on things he's seen. He doesn't yes. have people in the room. He doesn't necessarily do auditions in that in that way anymore. Yeah. So, and he always calls you personally. Oh, really? But I'd taken it after I finished Star Trek Beyond. I, I felt so kind of tired and emotionally wrecked that yeah. I thought I'm going to take six months off. And I said to my agent in the US and in the UK, don't call me unless Steven Spielberg calls. That was like the <laughs> joke, you know. Three months later, he did. And... Um, and and I got a call saying, "Oh, Stephen's going to call you." And I was out to dinner with some friends from Star Trek, and uh, and and very very happily was able to say, "I've got to take this call. Uh, it's coming in between main and dessert." Steve Spielberg, <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I took it in the stairwell of this restaurant, and 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 he explained what he wanted me to do, and as he had done with Tintin as well, and and um, and kind of and almost as if he was saying, "Do you want to?" Like yeah. I would say anything else, you know, yeah. and I was uh, I was very happy to say yes, please. So at the dinner, does the phone go and you go? Sorry, I've got to take this. It's yeah, it's Stephen. Well, I was with it was with, I was with Chris Pine and Sophia Butella, name drop, name drop. And, uh, <laughs> uh, so it was funny because obviously those two are just flying and and uh, it, it didn't feel like I was being disingenuous because they have their own mighty careers. But it was <laughs> it was very funny, particularly with Chris to go. I got to take this, Chris. It's uh, Stephen Spielberg. <laughs> You know that you went off the stairwell and he was getting his agent on the phone, get me fucking Spielberg on the yeah, phone right I know, now. Right. I want that film. <laughs> I want it right now. Yeah. Um, but are you at the point now with Spielberg where you don't filter yourself? Do you, have you gone past that stage now? Can you, I can think you be so. yourself? I, I, that's very, he's, that's, you know, he lives his life through movies. I remember when 
when we were on Tintin, my uh, my wife was pregnant, and I had a like um, a, a, the sonogram picture of the baby on my phone, and and it was like early days of the iPhone, and we were talking, and I said, and I showed him the picture. And he said, "Oh, wow, you must send me a picture when she's born." So, sure enough. I sent him a picture of Tilly when she was a baby and he mm. sent back, oh, she looks like the baby in 2001. <laughs> and I was like, of course you're going to say that because that's the first baby you're going to think of. You know, he thinks in those terms. But I find now, you know, I don't have to play it cool around him. You know, he, yeah. he, he's incredibly generous with his sort of time and attention and, and, and he's, he's very happy to talk about his work and, and, and as I say, not in a way that's sort of self-aggrandizing. It's just... That's what he loves to talk about and discuss. And it's always great to say something that he appreciates, you know, if you make a, mo- a reference to a, a movie. I remember asking him about Temple of Doom last time, about, about, the, about the bit in, uh, when, when they're sacrificing the guy and Moloram pulls his heart out. Mm-hmm. And I was saying, what, did that really happen? Or because he does it later on and there's like nothing in his hand. Is that, was it a hallucination? And then I got all tongue-tied and I couldn't remember it properly. And then he sort of explained it to me. And I was like, okay, thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs> I'll just go and yeah, I'll go stand in the corner. Yeah, I'll stand on my mark now, if that's yeah. okay. Uh, but you have written dialogue for Spielberg. I have, yeah. Have. What was that experience like? That was really fun, actually. Uh, you know, we... Because we, Nick and I had worked with him on Tintin. And, yeah. and with Paul, we, we always had this idea that, um, that Paul... It was like a sort of almost like a reverse referencing. It was like Paul had been the inspiration for so much of popular culture, not least E.T. And um, and we sensed even the script just said, look, we have this idea that, you know, you spoke to Paul before you made E.T. to get some ideas. And um, and he came into the studio. We were sh- we were doing some like post-production in um, in L.A. somewhere. And he just turned up on his own, you know, with his baseball cap on. There was no ceremony. He came in, did the dialogue had a laugh and left and that was it you know he was so kind of lovely with his time and um i think he appreciated the reference as well but and he was also like you know because in he's talking about et being messianic and he sort of said i didn't really think that about et and we're like okay sure but can you say that (laughs) he's like yeah okay did he improv at all or was he very much yeah no he kind of yeah he liked to he tried to do it like really conversationally and Mm -hmm. uh i mean what do you do when you're directing steven spielberg you just let him get on with it (laughs) he's entirely (laughs) self-directing he is a self-directed entity yes it's like steven i've got a a couple of notes (laughs) It's like getting a really brilliant sort of piece of furniture and opening the box and it puts itself together. <laughs> that's, that's Steven Spielberg. You don't give Steven Spielberg a line reading, do you? No. Does he give you line readings? Yes, in a way that's... That, that, that's the thing about this movie and, ha, and what has been amazing about working with him in performance capture and in, in real uh, live action is that you get to see his skill uh, is complete. You know, he... he, he it's tempting to... to describe his skill as being how he moves the camera because he's very good at, at, at choreography uh, with the camera how to move it to convey certain emotions how to frame scenes how to tell stories visually he is also really good at talking to his actors and he has incredible instincts when it comes to performance so you know he'll come up to you and he'll he'll give you quite quite sort of specific directions for your performance but they never feel like you, you never feel uh, indignant at that because they're invariably great directions. His skill with actors is extraordinary. And um, when you're in the volume doing performance capture, that's all there is because obviously the film will be directed later on. I remember when we did Tintin, funnily enough, 
that was his first performance capture movie and he had the mocap camera with him all the time and he'd be shooting the yeah. scene as we did it he has since learned that he doesn't need to do that he can put that aside and later on when all the scene is in the computer then he can direct it and shoot it from various angles because he has the 3d event yeah 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 you know but at the time because it was his first time he still felt the need to have the camera and um but yeah on this in the volume as it's called where you shoot the the, the performance capture it's just him and the actors so it's just him kind of giving us uh, directions as far as performance is concerned and and he's so good at that and you can when you watch his films you know that because he's elicited such amazing performances from children and from uh, actors generally he's just got that it's an innate skill do you remember the first time you fell in love with the Spielberg movie because there was a time in my life when I thought he directed every single film. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if of you had that same experience, but... Uh, yeah, I remember... Well, I remember the trailer for Raiders of the Lost Ark uh, started with... Uh, from the producers of Jaws and Star Wars. Now, I'd, n- <laughs> I'd never seen Jaws. I was too young. And... Uh, but something to do with Star Wars was very interesting to me, so yeah. I had to go and see this film. My stepdad came to me one evening and said, you've got two choices what we can do tonight. We can go to the fair or we can go to see Raiders of the Lost Ark. And I knew which one he wanted to do. And I kind of was, I wanted to please him a little bit. So I chose, I see this as a seminal decision in my life. I chose (laughs) Raiders of the Lost Ark over the ephemeral light show. (laughs) So I went to see Raiders and it was the mind-boggling experience it was for everybody. Such a, a gripping exhilarating fabulous ride full of quite violent moments you know I showed it to my daughter recently we went through all of them and uh, you know there's some pretty freaky moments like at the end when all the Nazis start melting she was going oh dad oh god dad this is terrible I'm going to have a nightmare can I watch it again literally like that (laughs) and um, but I look back on that decision to go and see Raiders and, and fall in love with him as a director and then again with E.T., you know, which was yeah. between the Star Warses, between Jedi and uh, Empire. And um, I remember getting worried when I watched E.T. because I think I liked it more than Star Wars. And I was, I was worried that I was being unfaithful to my, you know, my film wife, which was Star Wars at the time, because <laughs> it made me feel more yeah. uh, slightly. You know, I cried a lot at E.T. And, and, and was very, very, very obsessed with that film. Um, until Return of the Jedi came out, yes. and then I went back to Star Wars a little bit. Yeah, I do remember having those uh, that moment of, of wow, this guy, and then seeing Close Encounters, which was a slightly older kind of skewed movie. So I watched it. Uh, I didn't see it at the cinema. I saw it on TV, and then you know grew to love that movie. Did you grow to love it, especially through Nick Frost, who loves that film? Well, we both by the time we met, you know, we bonded on that film. Yeah. That was one of our joint favorites. You know, we both had a. Uh, an encyclopedic knowledge of it and um, it became a you know that was Nick's Nick took a first edition of the book to the set of Tintin for Stephen to sign and, which he managed to get up the courage to ask him on the last day you know. <laughs> and then hugged him three times <laughs> yeah <laughs> imagine though if you'd gone to the fair I know right now you might be on some sort of weird fair podcast with some guy it, t- asking about <laughs> you being a clown or whatever. so what was the first time you went on the waltzes <laughs> the irony is now of course is most cinema is an ephemeral light show <laughs> <laughs> well, there's an ephemeral light show on the end of Raiders as well. That's true. It's, it's right there. That's very true. But, you know, it doesn't, a fair wouldn't literally melt your face off. Yes. Unless, of no, course, it's the, gone to Some of them now, the safety standards are fairly bad. <laughs> it will literally melt your face off. I might give that one a miss, actually. 
but um, Ready Player One. Off. Yeah. Two- <laughs> 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 uh, Ready Player One's a, a tough movie to talk about in terms of your role, I think. Yes. Because we, you can get into spoiler territory. But yes. um, what can you say about Ogden Og? Oggy Og. Oggy Ogden. Yeah. Uh, Ogden Morrow. Well, he's the kind of... It's an interesting dynamic between him and James Halliday because they're kind of like a Wozniak-Jobs pairing, but mm. they both have qualities of both. So so Halliday has the sort of, I guess, the less of the, the, the social persona of, of Jobs, um, even though he's the kind of mastermind. And Wozniak was more like Halliday in some respects, but he had the... Uh, but Ogden Morrow had the kind of the front of of jobs, if you know what I mean. I've yeah, yeah, really yeah. Com- been confusing when I've said that. <laughs> but I think as a pairing, they kind of embody certain parts of it both. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's kind of the the wingman, really, to the genius. And yeah. I, I think he, he is his own... He's kind of like George Harrison, you know. He was a genius in a room where there were other geniuses. Um, <laughs> Better that than being Ringo, right? Absolutely. Well, you know. I mean, I love Ringo, Ringo's but come on. Ringo's my favourite drummer, but yeah. But he he's also the guy that was a bit more pragmatic and realistic about the yeah. Oasis. They Their fallout was, was about, you know, the fact that really the real world should also exist, whereas yeah. James Halliday lived his life at his happiest when he was in the Oasis, you know. And I think Ogden was was inclined to, to inv- advise him to maybe, you know, see it as just a game or whatever. I think I was accidentally on your first day in this movie. Uh, oh, you which were? was yeah, I was on set of Justice League out oh, at yeah. Leavesden, and I was walking with a group of journalists towards. They were going to show us the new Batmobile. Yeah. I was like, "Got to show you the new Batmobile! Amazing!" <laughs> right, okay, let's go see the new Batmobile. Walking along, I glanced to my right, and I saw what appeared to be Simon Pegg posing for some wedding photographs. Yes. And I saw. I, I went. Oh, and I went. <laughs> can't. No, couldn't be. Couldn't be. And then I, I think I texted you going, were you at Leavesden today? And you yeah, said, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that was me. Was that your first day? I, no, it wasn't my first day. It was because um, that was when we started to get into the live action stuff. But I'd... Um, oh, so you'd already done the full mocap onesie type stuff? Yeah, yeah, Okay, yeah. okay. And then we were... Yeah, we, and that was just all for magazines. I mean, stuff that you might not even see in the movie. I don't know, but... Uh, you know, stuff about Ogden, because Ogden had a relationship yeah. with someone that Halliday also had a f- relationship with, or had feelings for, uh, which was another sort of um, bone of contention in their relationship. So we had to do a lot of little, you know, s- side stills photography for, for the journals and stuff. But that's interesting that, uh, that, that Spielberg would actually go to those lengths, because so many times I'm, I'm watching a movie, and someone will pick up a, a picture of someone's wedding in the past yeah. and it's too terribly composite yeah. horribly full why can't they get that right yeah. I mean, it's it's so weird it's like the, the outstanding problem in uh, special effects is, is photoshop it's just how do you not know I don't know you can always see the faces slightly tacked on but yeah we went out and I had like a screen wife that doesn't have any lines in the film and we, oh. we took wedding pictures and um, you go on screen honeymoon as well. We went on screen honeymoon, we did. The, the camera crew came with us. We went to the Maldives. It was very nice. Stephen, I have to go to the Maldives. Ogden would want to go to the Maldives. It was. Uh, we we don't see each other anymore, sadly. <laughs> we got a screen divorce. Uh, my wife. She got uh, the screen kids. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Irreconcilable differences. Yeah. She's now spending all my screen money. It's 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 awful. It's awful. Um, I got uh, to see my screen kids at the cinema. <laughs> On a Saturday. <laughs> Take him to the fair. Yeah, I yeah. will. 
face melter. It's a better life. Yeah, go for it. Go for it. <laughs> um, the very last thing I, I will ask you about is: Are you still shooting Mission <laughs> Fallout at the moment? Or yes, not right now. Obviously, uh, this would be, be a really weird live. scene. Uh, actually, that's Graham Norton's joke, um, <laughs> which I thought was very funny. At that point, we 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 actually appeared on the Graham Norton show while we were still shooting. <laughs> promoting the film that we were shooting no we've finished we've wrapped uh, and McHugh has, uh, has wrapped there was some stuff they did in Abu Dhabi that's now wrapped so he's in yep. deep in the edit and okay. very excited for that can you tell me what Benji jumps off falls off because I, I think I don't think Ethan should get it all to himself he, he's always falling off stuff and jumping off stuff I do get it I get I get a little rough uh, rough and tumble in this one I must say yeah yeah, I mean, I didn't do any sort of bone breaking like Tom did because he always has to be the best at everything. But uh, I'll show you, Cruz. Look yeah, at this. Watch Smack. this. Watch my nose splatter across my face. Uh, yeah, no, it, it, it's 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 pretty. It's a little. I hate saying this because it's the most overused word. I, it's a little darker than Rogue Nation. I think it's kind okay. of. But at the same time, it feels like a continuation because. It's the same cast, even down to Sean yeah. Harris as Solomon Lane, who's brilliant. Sean Harris is whispering Sean Harris. I know, he's terrifying. Yeah. He's the sweetest man, though. Yes, <laughs> but also terrifying. But terrifying. <laughs> At the same time. Yeah. So Benji doesn't climb up the Blackpool Tower and climb up and then jump off that what? just for shits and giggles. I was on it for a year. I, did, I went underwater. Yeah, you forgot what you've done. And I drove a speedboat. That's good. Up the same, really fast. Okay, that's good. And I did all that myself. You were insane. I or was on literally same. insane. Don's La Seine. <laughs> Which is French for mad. Yeah. <laughs> Does that joke work in French? <laughs> Fuck no. it, it does now. All right, Simon, it's been a pleasure as always. Thanks, Chris. I'll, get, I'll upgrade the ketchup. No, I feel, this is enough. Don't I feel bad about don't, the ketchup. Don't be ostentatious. <laughs> Try not to be. Cheers, man. Thanks a lot. All right, so that was uh, Peggles, the Pegatron, the Pegmeister. Mm, literally none of Sai Sai, the Pegababy. Are any of these characters in The Princess Bride? Still none. I'll keep trying. Oh, please. I mean, you're very trying already, so... Oh, come hey, on! come on. You've wounded me. I do not think that word means what you think it means. It literally does. <laughs> <laughs> Never start a land war in Asia. That's a line from that film, right? It's one of the classic blunders. It's the most famous of the classic blunders, yes, in fact. including starting a movie podcast. But only slightly less well-known. Lan... Is... Is... Never... Rub another man's rhubarb. Uh, wrong film, but I'll okay. allow it. That's fine. What, what is it? Go against the Sicilian when death is on the line. Holy shit. Holy shit. I this, have no idea what's going on right now. This sounds, this <laughs> Do you not know The Princess Bride either? Not Inside Out. I've seen it many times, but <sighs> I don't know it inside out. I don't, uh, <laughs> Helen, come back. How am, I supposed come to back. Work, how am I supposed to work in these circumstances? Helen is bridesplaining to us right now. It's, <sighs> it's kind of amazing. Right, okay, let's move on uh, by talking about this week's movie news. Again, <laughs> has it changed since yesterday? Tell you what, we're going to start with the thing we, we finished with yesterday because we'd forgotten about it yesterday, but it's really good news, which is the news that Tessa Thompson and Chris Hemsworth are teaming up once again on the Men in Black spinoff. Not Thor 4, but the Men in Black spinoff, which I'm excited about now. Yeah, I mean, that that is a, a great kind of pairing to, to, to lead this new reboot. Um, they had such good chemistry in um, Thor Ragnarok. They were so much fun together in, especially the, the tone that that film uh, undertook where it was it was action, but there was a lot of comedy in there. That that balance and the, the comedic chemistry that they had, I mean, feels right for, for a potential Men in Black reboot. It's, a part of me, having spoken about 23 Jump Street, is a part of me would have liked to see what that um, proposed Men in Black and 
21 Jump Street crossover sort of thing would be. Mm-hmm. I don't think they're doing that anymore. But the thing that, that, like Chris says, is getting me interested now about this potential reboot is is Tessa and Chris. Yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm, I'm a bit wary always of the word reboot, but, you know... I do like the premise of Men in Black and I do think there's some, you know, room to play with it and make it something interesting and different. Yeah. So, fingers crossed. Absolutely. Spin-off. Spin-off, I think. It's, but how's it spin-off if it's the same thing, right? Yeah, I'm hearing reboot. You're hearing reboot? Yeah. Okay. But they were, they, yeah, they're awesome. So we want to see more of them. Indeed, um, yes. And uh, there were a whole bunch of trailers that came out last week, this week. I'm confused about what week it is now. I guess Chief Amongst Them was Deadpool 2. What do yeah. we make of that? Yeah, it looks like a lot of fun. I, I liked but didn't love the first film. But it seems like they're just pushing everything further in a really enjoyable way for the for the sequel. So there is plenty more inventive swearing. Uh, I think my favourite is What the Fucksicle. Yes. Um, there is some like really over-the-top gore. Deadpool shoving his, his wounded hand through a gun barrel is pretty disgusting. And yeah, it just looks like more mayhem, really. It, there's a, a more of a hint of what the plot is going to be, if that really matters. Um, so, Does it matter? Nah. Do you care? No, not you even don't. slightly. Uh, <laughs> and there's Julian Dennison from Julian Dennison. Um, Hunt for the Wilder People. Which... His character still doesn't have a name, so I think we should just keep calling him Ricky Baker for now. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah, he looks he looks awesome. <laughs> I can't wait to see him. Is um, what the fuck skull a character in the Princess Bride? Sounds <laughs> like it could be. No. So Robin Wright as Buttercup. Correct. Comes in, and there he is, Mandy Patinkin. And he goes, hello, my name is What the Foxicle. You killed my father. Prepare to dicicle. Wow. No. Literally none of that. No. <sighs> I like the trailer. Could be a lot of fun. Yeah, there was some, you know, there were some worrying rumours going around about Deadpool yes. earlier in the week. So I'm glad that the trailer made it look like those were perhaps less founded than we feared. And of course, this is the first straight-up trailer that this film has had as well. Yeah. The, you know, there's obviously moments where he breaks the fourth wall within the movie, but this the first trailer had the Bob Ross thing, the second trailer had the playing with the dolls thing, and this third trailer is just a basic straight, this is what the film's going to look and sound like. Mm-hmm. And it's got all your old favourites, they're coming back, and X-Force are going to be in yeah, it as well. new favourites. So we've got um, uh, Domino, Zazie Beats is playing Domino. Uh, it looks like uh, ne- Negasonic Teenage Warhead is mm-hmm. also going to be mm-hmm. on the X-Force. And Terry Crews, who hopefully will just be himself. Terry Crews yeah. is a member of the X-Force. Yeah. Uh, yeah, his character's still unnamed at the moment. So Bedlam. Ooh, he has a name. Sadly, it's not Terry Crews. Um, <laughs> that is a bit of a that is a bit upsetting because he is the greatest. Um, and uh, as a fan of Brooklyn Nine Nine, which I highly recommend, he is he is fantastic in that. Um, and you can get your like Crews fix every week. I also have a question, which is this: Is he the first grandfather to play a superhero? And I genuinely don't know mm. the answer. So if anyone knows of any other grandfathers playing superheroes, Michael Douglas maybe, but he was barely a superhero in Ant Man. So I don't feel like that really counts. Possibly like he's not... more of a superhero in Ant-Man and the Wasp this summer. We'll see. He could Do be we think bit... he'll be back in the suit in Ant-Man and the Wasp? I wouldn't be surprised if there was like flashback stuff. But that was yeah. him. Yeah, but do we think he was in the suit in the flashback stuff is what I'm asking. I think he will be in the suit as Hank Pym now in this movie. Huh. According to the concept art we saw at Comic-Con. Ah, well, in that case, two grandfather superheroes. But I would also throw in Patrick Stewart. I don't know whether he's a grandfather, but I assume he is. He must be. Let's give him a grandkid. 
Has anyone got a spare grandkid? If yeah. so, please yeah. donate to P. Stewart. Then we also have, I'll run them through them very, very quickly. We had some comedy trailers. Uh, did you yep. see these all? Tag, The Spy Who Dumped Me, and then Johnny Knoxville's Action Point, which is a prequel and a sequel, like The Godfather Part 2. Oh, to Bad Grandpa. I'm sorry. Are we comparing Action Point to The Godfather Part 2? You're right. Sorry. The, the comparison is an invidious one. The Godfather Part 2 could not even begin to live up to Bad Grandpa. So, Which does have an Oscar nomination for Best Makeup. Yeah, so, just, so does Norbit, grandpa. though. So let's not get ahead of ourselves. I, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I just have to take a moment here to call the Society of you know Film Critics and report Chris for what he just said. I feel like he'll be stripped of his oh, titles. I think the Society of Film Critics are well aware of me. <laughs> I'm on their, I'm on their watch list, and they already know that he's stripped. <laughs> yes, I'm always stripped and ready for action. As far as the oh. London Critics Circle is uh, is concerned. So, what's your film called, The Princess Bride? Princess Bride. Right, I'm going to look up an interesting fact about it while mm-hmm. you guys talk about those well, trailers. While well, Chris is doing that, can I talk about a different trailer that looks amazing? Oh my God, this has all gone mental. This is anarchy, Ben. Okay, okay. What's, what's, your trailer? what's your trailer? My trailer is, uh, I wish I could take some credit for it, it's the new film from David Robert Mitchell who made It Follows four years ago, which mm-hmm. is such a good film, a really great uh, horror film. Yeah. His new film was called Under the Silver Lake, uh, it seems to be moving away from that sort of horror territory and more into a kind of trippy mystery thriller. So you've got Andrew Garfield as Sam, uh, who is this slightly strange American guy who becomes a bit obsessed with his neighbour, Sarah, played by Riley Keough. Um, and she suddenly kind of ups and leaves from the neighbourhood for probably fairly legitimate reasons, but he becomes pretty obsessed uh, that there's some kind of conspiracy behind it and tries to crack a conspiracy that is possibly not even there. The trailer is um, like really stylized. It looks. If you've seen it, follows. You know what a good-looking film mm-hmm. that was. Yeah, it was. Um, and that kind of slightly neon-y, uh, really vibrant cinematography. Um, it looks really exciting. There's uh, not a UK release date for this one yet. It's coming out in the US on the 22nd of June. So hopefully we'll get it around the same time. But definitely go and watch the trailer because that's just become one of my most anticipated films this year. Alrighty. Um, for the comedy films you mentioned, um, I'm interested in Tag because it is based on a true story of this mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. crowd of friends who have been playing yes. it, Tag, whatever, um, for, for several years now, and I th- well, decades. And, and it's brilliant. It's a brilliant story. And if they mess it up, then I feel like they've done the reality of this <laughs> service. So I'm very, very much hoping that it is. It in is its favour, yeah. is that it's not an Adam Sandler film. Because when I first read about this story... And I, I read that Hollywood were sniffing around it. I thought, oh, this is going to be, this is going to be Adam Sandler chasing David Spade and Rob Schneider. No, I thought it was, why you would know, you think this? Because they would pounce upon it, wouldn't they? Go, yeah, we can, uh, we can do that, and then we can hang out together, and we can be friends, you know. And Chris Rock can come along, and there's Kevin James, and but instead they've gone, they've, they've, they've gone slightly more studio based now because obviously Sandler is in Netflix's uh, grasp, and they've gone for different set of actors shall we say so you've got John Hamm's yep. in there we've got Hannibal Barres is in there Ed Helms and they went who do we who do we get to top line this comedy who do we get who is the guy who has the funny bones who is the guy who is perhaps a little free at the moment because he's not in another movie <laughs> Jeremy Renner. Jeremy Renner. Yes. Get me Jeremy Renner, famously known for his comedies. That's, I mean, that's unfair. He's very funny. He's very funny in both Avengers movies. He's also good in the Hurt, in the Hurt Lolker. No, that's inappropriate. And uh, 
That's so funny. Trying to think of more Jeremy Renner films that aren't the Hurt Locker or Avengers. I can't think of it. What was that? The what was born the born? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm out of Jeremy Renner films. <laughs> Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. Oh my god! So he's great in those films, isn't he? So I can see why they would have gone for him for this. Yes, he can be funny. He has his own rufflecopter. John right. Hamm is amazing when he's on comedy form as well. Like yes. I love that his basic two modes of, of acting are either like full on uh, Don Draper or absolute pure comedy <laughs> mugging in Thirty Rock yeah. and Bridesmaids, Toast of London, Toast of London, yeah, Ham and Buble, oh his finest God. hour. Both are finest hours. I would Both say. Both are finest hours. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so let's wrap up the uh, the news section. Just quickly. Oh, yes. Uh, Disney's planning a live-action Lady and the Tramp. Jesus Christ. And again, can I I know you can't see me, but I am putting air quotes around live-action because they're going to use CG dogs, right? And I just, I'm, I'm exhausted by this. We need a different word. I've got a word for you, Helen. What's that? Animaction. Animaction. Yeah, so it's animation, right? No, I, I get it, yeah. Joined together mm-hmm. with live-action. Wow. Yeah. Ben's well, on board. Okay, but I just feel Moderately. like, you know, we've had The Jungle Book, we're getting The Lion King, we're getting Lady and the Tramp. These films are not, most, for the most part, live. And okay. I feel like we need a new word. I agree. Uh, okay, so I'm going to throw a bit of trivia at you here. We were talking about Oscar nominations a second ago. Sure. You said Norbit, which is one of the worst films of all time. Sure. Uh, I think, it, didn't it win the Oscar for Rick Baker? I think it might have done. I uh, mean, in fairness, the it makeup didn't win, is very it was good. Nominated. It was nominated. I thought it was nominated okay. personally, but... Is it Norbert or Norbert? Norbert. 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 Your beloved, your beloved Princess Bride only received one Oscar nomination. Can you tell me in which category? Was it song? It was. For what? Mark Knopfler. No. Wasn't it? He sang it. Uh, Willie DeVille. Willie Deville. <laughs> Is that a made-up name? <laughs> it sounds like it. <laughs> Willie Devil. No, it says here he was. Uh, yeah, he was a real guy, and he uh, he died in two thousand and nine. For for the song from the Princess Bride. Yeah, uh, for the song yeah, Storybook uh, Love. Storybook Love. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Okay. Right. Yeah. I know what's happened. What's happened? Nothler did the score, and Willie Deville did the song, but he sang it. I think Nothler. So that's I think. Okay. No, I'm confused. You're right. But only the person who writes a song gets the nomination. That's fair. Ah, uh, okay. Uh, right, let's wrap up the uh, news section by I said there would be another Empire plug after the Empire Awards bit earlier on. And there is indeed, because it is new Empire time, the Woo! new issue of Empire. Yes. The new issue of Empire went on sale this week, and it is a cracker. If you, I mean, I don't myself, but if you'd like the Marvel Cinematic Universe <laughs> and you like. Movies about superheroes. Sure, Helen, okay. are you into that sort of I mean, stuff? God, I'm so highbrow, Chris. I'm just not. I'm just not here for I mean, people in lycra. I mean, it's if just... only someone like Kenneth Branagh would make a Marvel film, <sighs> then maybe we'd be interested. Yeah, or like but Ryan like, Coogler or somebody. Like, yeah. get somebody good. Do you know, you know what? what? I mean? Actually, no. What they need someone like with Edge. They need someone like a Shane Black or. Mm. I don't know, like a Taika Waititi. Yeah, or oh, like those guys off the TV, the Russos. Like if they made those one. guys, yeah. the guys who make Community. Yeah, the guys who did Arrested Development. Think outside the box, guys. Come on, this the guys who did you, me, and Dupree. <laughs> <laughs> That's never going to work. That's never going to work. But anyway, uh, we've set aside whatever misgivings we have about this, and we have put this this movie on the cover. Uh, for you it guys, is, for the readers. It is, of course, Helen. As you know, Avengers. 
Infinity War, which is, as we all know, the sequel to Black Panther, which was a sequel to Thor Ragnarok, which was a sequel to Spider-Man Homecoming, which was a sequel to Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, which was a sequel to Doctor Strange, which was a sequel to Captain America Civil War, which was a sequel to Ant-Man, which was a sequel to... Am I missing one? No, I'm going well so far. Which was a sequel to Avengers Age of Ultron, which was a sequel to Guardians of the Galaxy, which was a sequel to Captain America the Winter Soldier, which was a sequel to Thor the Dark World, which was a sequel to Iron Man 3, which was a sequel to Avengers Assemble, which was a sequel to... Uh, Captain America the First Avenger which was a sequel to Thor which was a sequel to Iron Man 2 which was a sequel to The Incredible Hulk which was a sequel to Iron Man and he's actually wearing heels (laughs) (laughs) wow I didn't think I'd be able to do that uh, again uh, so wow yes so Avengers Infinity War is on the cover uh, I was lucky enough to go to the movie set in Edinburgh <laughs> in Edinburgh in Scotland uh, I had to do so I had to fade Helen's glare so I went I went to Edinburgh and then to Atlanta it's a very long glare uh, and I spoke to pretty much everybody involved with the film, which has one or two superheroes in it, in case you didn't notice already. So I spoke to Robert Downey Jr. and Chris Evans and Benedict Cumberbatch and Tom Holland and the Russos and all kinds of lovely people. And uh, so the cover feature is in there as well. And it comes with a supplement celebrating 10 years of the MCU. Helen and I wrote I'd say pretty much (laughs) all of that ourselves. Uh, So do check that out. There's loads of new content in there, loads of new interviews and and great facts about the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But if you don't like superheroes... Like like us. Like like us. You know, if you're highbrow like us. You know, I just... I come home of of an evening and... uh, I just want to watch Hi, Matt. Hi, Matt. (laughs) That's how highbrow I am. (laughs) So high, Brian. But yes, we have yeah. other stuff in there. We Great do have other stuff. stuff, yeah. So we have uh, John Krasinski, for example, yes. talking about his new film, A Quiet Place, which looks amazing. Jim from The Office. Jim from The Office. We also have Ghost Stories. Tim from The Office. Yes, which is Martin Freeman's new film. Indeed. So that's scary. And do you know who else scares you? Who else? Nigel Farage. He's oh. not in the issue, though. Oh, you'd be God. glad to know. But Jason Blum is. So we've had him on the podcast a couple of times. He is Hollywood producer extraordinaire. He makes horror movies for $5 million, $10 million, and they make loads and loads of money. And in the case of Get Out, get nominated and win Mm -hmm. Oscars. And uh, we went along to his LA HQ to ask him how he does it. And... um, Thank God he told us, otherwise it'd be a really short feature. Uh, what else is in there? We have There's all the a breakdown of all the good boys and girls from Isle of Dogs. They're such Yay. good boys. They're such good boys and girls. I yes. give a feature 13 out of 10. It's a heckin' good feature. <laughs> Daniel Brule as well, doing the Pound of Milk interview, I believe. Yes, and, uh, and because it's the Avengers... Mm-hmm. We celebrate the 20th anniversary of that other movie called The Avengers. Oh. Based, of course, on the uh, seminal... Uh, British TV show yeah. Steed Mrs. Peel all that sort of stuff but the the film starring Ray Fiennes Uma Thurman and Sean Connery and let's not forget Sean Ryder and Eddie Izzard uh, is an awful awful it's awful film. film I saw it in the cinema I was very excited to see that film and I saw it, was, it twice in the cinema it was, it was not good yeah uh, so we, we spoke to the director of that Jeremiah Chechik and uh, got the full skinny in that and there's loads of great stuff as well there's Mission Impossible Fallout new pick from that concept art from Ant-Man and the Wasp uh, Frank Oz talks about his career Luca Guadagnino takes us through Call Me By Your Names key moments there's tons of stuff inside the issue it is on sale now as you know in all good and evil news agents so do pick up a copy and you know what just pay it forward pay my wages 
you absolute motherfuckers. Chris, Chris, what? We, we talked about this. Yeah, we, we went oh. through this No, no cursing on the readership, please. Oh, okay, sorry. Yeah. sorry. <laughs> I don't know what I was thinking. No, I just, I know you, I know. You it's mean It's so well. easy to slip into it. Oh, it's okay, it's fine. Okay, we can re-record. I can, I can, I can do this. Okay. Just, you know, just pay it forward, guys. Just pay my wages. You know, you... Is it too much to ask you Chris, festering Chris, gutter snipes? Chris. No, come on. We love them. We value them. And they do pay your wages. This is true. This turn is it, true. Turn it down, not up. Turn down. it down. Turn it down. Okay. Pay my wages. I love you guys. I will literally kill you if you don't pay my wages. I mean, close enough. Okay. I mean, that was nicer, yeah. at least. That's uh, that's a movie news done. Hurrah! Should we have should another we, interview? Let's have another interview. Who should we have? Uh, oh, I don't know. Have we got, like, the most important filmmaker of the past 40 years? Brian LeFant is the director of Problem Child <laughs> no, and no. Problem Child. I don't remember speaking to him. I don't think you did. Oh, you mean the other important? The other one, yeah. Okay. John Badham has made movies no, like again. No, let's. Which one are you think more like? Even Spielberg. Legend oh, of shit. our lifetime. Oh, right. Yes. Sorry. You know that guy. <laughs> All right. Okay. Yes, you're right. Of course, you're right. Steven Spielberg. He came into the Empire Awards immediately after the Empire Awards finished. I had to run up and do this podcast interview with Steven Spielberg. Oh, they, per they, you. Yes, I had to go up and interview Steven Spielberg because. That's just, a, it's a life we chose. It's a life it's we life lead. We lead and there's only one guarantee. <laughs> None of us will see heaven. Yes, it's, it's, you know, I think this is the hard knock life that they sang about in Annie. <laughs> is it though? I think, I think it is. I had to go and talk to the greatest film director of all time. Absolute bastard. <laughs> I've been in a room with him twice and I haven't been able to speak to him twice. What would you say? If, you, if Steven Spielberg were sitting right I have, here... I have two questions already. Like, I haven't even thought about it. I have two questions on the top, tip of my tongue immediately. Good, Number one, why are you so great? Number two, oh. will you be my friend? Come on. <laughs> what more do we need? What attracted you to the project? <laughs> that's, that's three. What for you is cinema? <laughs> that's four. What Those are the four basic you questions. to make the film so that you do? You don't need any other questions. That's, I think that runs else. the gamut. So Yeah. Steven Spielberg is the greatest film director in the history of movies. He has made one or two decent movies, likes of Jaws, Raiders of the Lost Ark, E.T., Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Jurassic Park, and The Lost World, Jurassic Park. You can't do two, Ben. It's just cheating. You can't. Saving Private Ryan. Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, the greatest of the Indiana Jones trilogy. Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. There we go. <laughs> Indiana Jones, oh wait, there's only three. Uh, Minority Reports? <laughs> Minority Reports. Munich. Yes. War of the Worlds. Schindler's List. AI, artificial intelligence. Duel. Catch me if you can. The Post. Ready Player One. Incredible stuff. A filmography, I would say, unrivaled in cinema history. Uh, very deserving of the award legend of our lifetime. And yes, after the awards were over, uh, we ran up to an empty media room at the Roundhouse and chatted for about 15, 20 minutes about Ready Player One and... Some of Steven Spielberg's incredible filmography. I hope you enjoy it. I, I am delighted to be joined on the Empire podcast, literally minutes after the end of the Empire Awards, by Empire's legend of our lifetime, Steven Spielberg. How the devil are you, sir? Um, I'm feeling uh, very, very good right now. <laughs> How could I not <laughs> after that amazing uh, uh, re- reception? Thank you for that. Uh, that's quite a heavy award. It is a heavy award. But, um, 
it will not be using to keep papers from flying off my desk. I'm going to I'm going to display this in another way. This is the way it should be displayed <laughs> vertically. <laughs> Absolutely vertically. Uh, you have won a number of awards in your illustrious career. Do you have a, a trophy room? Do you have just the longest shelf in the world? Where do you keep your awards? I keep I keep except for the Oscars. The Oscars are at my house, but okay. but, but I, I keep my awards at, at my office uh-huh. and at, at where I work. Okay. Every day. Yeah. Just so when I'm having a really bad day and I can't figure out a, <laughs> a, a problem with the script or, or, or things aren't working out too well with a movie we just made or I see a cut I don't like and don't know how to fix it, uh-huh. I can always remind myself of who I was a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's the guy. That's okay. a, oh, well, I, I remember him in his heyday. Yeah. What would that guy do? Is that, is that what you think? Sometimes. <laughs> Sometimes. I, I struggle to believe that you have a problem with, uh, with putting cuts together. When was the last time you had a problem that you didn't think you could overcome. I've had it. Well, you know, some here's the thing. Uh, there are two. Mo- there are two kinds of movies, uh, and both of which are movies that I, that I would have directed. One kind is the film that I intended to direct, uh-huh. and then the other movie is the result of my intention, which isn't always lined up right, yes. perfectly. Yes. Uh, and 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 you know, and I, I always have the movie I carry it around with me. I know what it should feel like. Uh-huh. I know what it should look like. If it doesn't feel or look that way, I try very hard in post production, editing and, and you know, it, we're, we're through Johnny Williams' music. Please, Johnny, save my movie this time again, please. <laughs> I just try to get it closer to the way I intend, and it doesn't always work out that way. And sometimes I have a vision for a film, but the result is much bigger and better than the vision I initially carried. Okay. And that, and, and, and I've had both experiences. Okay. Uh, did you have that experience at any point on, on Ready Player One? Yeah, well, Ready Player One w- w- was far beyond where I thought it could possibly go. I mean, and that's, that's credited to, you know, to my actors and Zach Penn, the writer, and, and, and certainly ILM. Mm-hmm. Some of the best work they've ever done in their, their long history has, mm-hmm. has they saved up for Ready Player One. Thank goodness. <laughs> uh, as, as a filmmaker, do you, does it excite you that you can go into the world of mocap, the world of CG, mm-hmm. and put your camera anywhere? Well, you know, it, it used to be that I could put my camera anywhere my imagination kind of instructed me, but then the result would be limited by budget or the result would be limited by technology. You know, my dream was bigger than the technology available at the time. Yeah, sure. And, and now with digital technology today, it's, uh, there's nothing you can't do. And, 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 and my only caution about that is, you know, I, I'm, I was very concerned, and, and it's very important that Ready Player One be about story. Yes. And about character, and about friendship, and about this great race to a finish line. And that the special effects and all the digital work simply tells the story. It enhances the story, but it doesn't upstage the story. Yes. So, so I, I really believe in the digital, in digital cinema mm-hmm. as long as the audience isn't paying to see digital cinema. Yes. But as long as the audience really is paying to see a, a good story being told. And uh, I, I, th- I think looking at your work over the years, you have been a very improvisational filmmaker as well mm-hmm. I mean there's obviously the famous example on, on Raiders of the of the Arab swordsman and yes which was of course not meant to be that shot now you're working in this in this way and you're working very very fast as well are you still open to accidents and can accidents happen when you're working on a film like Ready Player One where you have complete control sure I mean accidents can happen all the time but happy accidents I yeah. think Arthur Penn coined that term a long time ago the, the filmmaker Arthur Penn um, yes they do and they, it happened all through Ready Player One uh, where you know all of a sudden we were on the set and we were joking around with the cast and we were making jokes about 
what could make this seem more surprising? Mm-hmm. And then somebody came up with this comment about, well, this would surprise me if I went to a movie and saw that happen. And we all of a sudden said, oh, my God, can we get the rights to that? I won't tell you what that is, but, <laughs> but, but my first thought, how do we get the IP to that iconic movie to put it in this movie? Okay, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, so there's, yeah. There's, those are kind of accidents, but those are accidents that have to be planned way ahead of time because it takes you know a year to generate these these digital effects does this movie mean a lot to you it does it means a lot to me because it's a celebration of all the movies i loved growing up Mm -hmm. it's a celebration of for me what it used to feel like to me as a kid going to the movies Mm -hmm. and i wanted to make a movie again because i made a few of these but i wanted to make a movie again that made me feel like oh this is why i go to the movies this is why i went to the movies yes how do you come up with shots Stephen? because is it is it an experience? Is it completely off the cuff for you? Do you how, how meticulous are you in your planning, or do things just come to you? I, I, I've always loved the story about mm-hmm. how Paul McCartney woke up mm-hmm. with yesterday in his head, yeah. completely in his head. Is it like that for you? Pretty much, uh, not on every fi- picture. Some pictures I have to you know, almost take a hammer to uh, the claw of a hammer to y- <laughs> yank the nails out of my brain before an idea, you know, sieves out. I, it, it, sometimes it's hard and sometimes the ideas come very, very quickly and it's almost, they're coming too quickly. Mm-hmm. And I, I write everything down I can, or I talk in a little tape recorder to, so I can remember what the, what ideas I, I was having uh, before breakfast. Cause I'll invariably forget after I have oh, really? a big okay. breakfast. Yes. I have okay. to remember all my days before breakfast. Um, but for the most part, yeah, I think what's fun is coming up with ideas on the spur of the moment and shots, especially shots and ready player one. I had this amazing tool, which was, looks like a video game controller, but what it was, it was, uh, it was a device that allowed me to have complete control of a camera, kind of a free floating camera. Oh, okay. Yeah. And I would, I, I would be able to capture something in the motion capture volume with my actors. Uh-huh. They would be represented by these kind of very low resolution, um, uh, uh, almost cartoons of what, the, the, of what they are going to really look like when they're all resolved yes. later on. Yes. And then I'm able to fly my camera and get my shots. And that was the most fun I had on Ready Player One was really going into the, we call the V-Camp tent and, <laughs> and, and, and acquiring all the shots that are now in the movie. Uh, you did an interview for Empire recently with Edgar Wright. Yes, who, who on Duel. In that uh, interview, you talked about how, how on Duel in particular uh, you, you came ultra prepared you had shot list upon shot list uh, and over the years do you still do that do you still for example in Ready Player One which is a movie like, like as we said you can put your camera anywhere is a shot list something that can even exist yeah yeah I was able to do a shot list on that because okay. I was also able to um, you know when you shoot a movie like Ready Player One the actors when they're not playing in the real world playing themselves in the real world but yes. when they're playing their avatars they have to be on a big you know empty motion capture volume mm-hmm. um, and and that's okay but it's abstract for the actors I, I had a lot of new actors in this that didn't hadn't done a lot of films like Ty Sheridan mm-hmm. Olivia Cook. they had done some work but not a lot Lena Waithe almost had done nothing before this oh, wow. as an actress and um, and I found it very helpful since they're in the abstract they're in a big white room all we had to do was put on the Oculus uh, uh, virtual reality, you know, you know, headsets, mm. and suddenly the whole virtual set was right there. Right. And the actors could walk around the set, see where the doors were, where the windows were. They could walk into the distracted globe. They could walk into H's garage. Wow! And and they absolutely understood the mood, the tone. These were fully lit digital sets, but once you take the goggles off your eyes, you're back in the white 
motion capture volume, and that. But at least you have a you have a you have a reference for your imagination. Yes. You, you know where you are. You know where you're going. You know what the scene's going to feel like, and it really helped orient the actors, and so they could forget about where they were and just focus on their performances. Is there a movie in your career that you would go back and remake using this technology? No, I wouldn't know. I don't think there's anything I'd go back and remake because every movie is a marker for technology, for state of the art as it existed back then. And it's kind of fun to look back. I mean, I still to this day regret ever doing any digital enhancements to E.T. Yeah. I wish I had never done that because E.T. represents where the state of the art was in 1981, 82. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for example... Would you not be tempted to do Jaws, but without having to spend all those days on the water <laughs> with, with the shark breaking down every five minutes? If I had the digital <laughs> tools back in 1974 that I have today, the film would have not been a hit because there would have been far too many shark shots. So the audience would be, wouldn't be afraid. There'd be nothing. And Johnny Williams probably wouldn't have even imagined those important, two, those important notes yes. because those notes... Uh, substituted for the shark that didn't work that I didn't have available. So John said, well, I'll be your musical shark. <laughs> and I think the film's much scarier because there was, there was a dearth of shark. Tonight you received the uh, Legend of a Lifetime Award. You were presented it, uh, beforehand you were presented it with, uh, with a video in which a great number yes. of people pay tribute to you. Uh, it, it must be a humbling experience. It's very it? humbling. It was very, I didn't know where to put my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> and they were watering, so I was kind of like very aware of who's watching me reacting to this. Because I, I, was, I, I was very emotional, you know, watching, you know, my colleagues and my friends and and uh, actors I've worked with, you know, 25 years ago, like Sam Neill, and actresses I've worked with a few months ago, like Meryl Streep. It, mm-hmm. was, it was just beautiful. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, and I just feel very lucky. And then uh, Simon Pegg made the, uh, the speech that introduced uh, you onto the stage. And uh, you and Simon have worked together a few times now. Simon is one of the few people mm-hmm. who has written dialogue for you in a movie. Simon wrote dialogue for me in Tintin. Yeah, but he wrote, he wrote for you to act in Paul. It, and will you play? Your, yes, you play, I did. Will you I play, played yourself? I played myself. Hey, he wrote all those lines, and I came and I did it with Seth Rogen sitting right behind me playing his character. And uh, yeah, that I mean, Simon's great, and Simon and you know, basically they created Thompson and Thompson. Yes. They, they really were able to run with it and improvise. And they were they're great. They're a great team. Uh, you have uh, again going back to the idea of, of Paul. As an actor, you have you've, you've made a couple of cameos. A few, over the years. not many, not many. Yeah. I restrict myself because I don't like watching myself on the screen. <laughs> uh, but I, yeah, I've, I made a few. I was in the Blues Brothers, and yes, I put myself in, in my first few movies uh-huh. because I wanted uh, because SAG offered better health and welfare benefits really? than I could get anywhere else. So, and I was told that. And I said, well, if I give myself a couple of lines, I can benefit from the SAG health plan. Okay. But there was never an alternative universe where Steven Spielberg, the actor, is the dominant force. It was never something you gravitated towards. No, never. I never, ever th- saw myself as a uh, performer in front of the camera, ever. Okay. That's interesting because um, I, I, I've spoken to a number of directors over the years mm-hmm. who said that... Uh, They've taken acting classes. Guillermo del Toro. Well, I took acting classes, too. I I, I studied with Jeff Corey when I was in college. Okay. But I I didn't take acting classes to become an actor. I took acting classes to become a director. Precisely. So how did it help? Did it help you become more empathetic? Did it help you uh, come to terms with different actors' toolkits? Because every actor 
is different. I presume you don't direct Tom Hanks the same way you would direct Meryl Streep. Right. You know, you know, acting school was really good for me. Acting class was good for me. For one thing, it shows me how hard actors have to work, not just to improvise, not just to um, uh, memorize their lines, and uh, but to withstand the withering criticism of an acting teacher. A lot of the acting teachers are kind of brutal. At least they were when I was growing up and going from class to class. There were some acting teachers like Joan Darling that, that she used love to to make you see in, within yourself, inside yourself better. Yeah. But yeah. other acting teachers were were very much of part of the Strasbourg, uh, yes. you know, you know, you know, discipline. Yes. And uh, you, it really teaches you to, um, to to put your ego in a drawer and lock the drawer, and just be vulnerable and and let those feelings be memories for the rest of your life those, that, those feelings of vulnerability is that something that you had uh, throughout your career is that something that you had for example directing Peter Falk back in Colombo do you use the same techniques with him as you would with Tom Hanks no not at all I, because you know because Peter and Tom are different human beings are different yeah. people you know I would never presume to you know to use some kind of a Stephen technique <laughs> on everybody I, I, I bend to the, the I really bend to the sway of of, of of the personalities I'm involved in yes you know and I don't, I don't want to say directing uh-huh. but collaborating on a performance so it's very important that I bend to them mm-hmm. and not that they are forced to bend to some kind of regimen that I have trained myself to yeah. to, to, to to you know to I guess um, Dictate. I, I'm not a dictatorial director at all. <laughs> uh, how many takes do you do roughly with with an actor? Is it literally it, just as many? It depends. As it Tom Hanks doesn't need a lot of takes. Mm-hmm. Other actors need more takes. Want more takes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Leo DiCaprio likes a lot, a lot of takes, and I enjoyed that. And there's other actors like Anthony Hopkins when he, you know, played John Quincy Adams in Amistad. Mm-hmm. You know, he only needs one or two takes. <laughs> and he feels he's given you his best performance. And I would often say to Ant, Let, let's do two or three more. But I, I would see that he, he really understood the moment on take three or take two. Uh-huh. And he started to sort of get tired of hearing himself act those same lines by take four and five. So some actors very, very early on, you know, you know, arrive at that great yes. moment that will yeah. li- live forever in yeah. the movie. And other actors take a lot longer to build up to it. Uh, let me ask you about one specific yeah. uh, or a couple of specific incidents if you have the time in your career. Uh, Robert Shaw's amazing speech, the Indianapolis mm-hmm. speech yes. in Jaws. Uh, was that a many take deal? Was that something that no, you worked very not, intimately with him? No, it wasn't many take. So, you know, the speech was conceived by Howard Sackler, who's an uncredited screenwriter that really broke the back of the structure in a good way. He's the one that really found the structure for Jaws. And he didn't want a screen credit. He only worked four weeks on the script. I worked with him every day at the Beller Hotel. And, uh, and he just said, I'm happy to, to do this and take my money and go. And, <laughs> and he was a great guy to work with. But then John Milius, my friend, my good friend, collaborator, he went and wrote a seven, eight-page monologue for Quint. And then Robert Shaw read the eight pages, said this is too long, and Robert cut it down to five and edited it. So I had a lot of collaborators on that speech. And Robert only needed a couple of takes. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah. And did you have any notes for him, or did he nail it pretty much right off the bat? No, he pretty much, he was Quint. <laughs> I mean, he became the character of a Quint, and everything, he, he could do nothing wrong. Yes. Every time he opened his mouth, it was Quint. Wow, amazing. And then I guess uh, the flip side of that coin is, 
the beach sequence in Save a Private Ryan. I had the good fortune recently mm. to write for Empire for the mm. issue yes. to, to take yes. over uh, an oral history of uh-huh. that sequence. I talked to Tom Hanks. I talked that was great. To it was a great, a great history. I love reading it. Oh, thank you very much. I read indeed. it twice. Oh, I wasn't fishing for compliments. But I, I read it I, twice. I, I, I thought it was really insightful for me who made the movie. <laughs> <laughs> did it bring anything back or did it, did it, it conjure it, up any it, memories it, of you? I, I smelled the cordite that day <laughs> based on what you wrote. <laughs> many of the actors, and I spoke to many of the actors who were mm. involved in that sequence. Yeah. Uh, said that it, it felt like a war zone. That was literally yeah. the thing that you wanted to conjure around him. Um, and even Tom said that necessarily you, you know, the, the communication, you, you, you mm-hmm. wanted to just plunge him in. There's a guy going to be on fire. You might mm-hmm. see a guy on fire. You might see people blowing up. Just completely improvised that entire 26-minute uh, yeah. beach landing. It was improvised, but it was based on interviews with actual veterans of Omaha Beach. And also Utah Beach, but mm-hmm. but we, we we met a lot of people through the great late author Stephen Ambrose, and he introduced me to a lot of the same veterans of uh, Dog Green Omaha Beach yes. that he had interviewed for his book Citizen Soldiers. So I got to meet a lot of them and talk to them, and then I just stored away what I had learned and pretty much shot it in complete strict continuity from yeah. the Higgins boats right to the, where they got to get to the top of the Veerville Pass, Veerville Draw, wow. and the whole thing was shot in continuity. And we took the beach literally maybe seven feet. A day we only really progressed seven feet a day and it took us 26 days to shoot 26 minutes oh my god that's amazing i will i will finish off by asking about what you're doing next you said on stage at indiana jones 5 that that if, unless i find something small to do this year and i'm still looking for something yeah i'm developing a few things but if i don't find something my next directing will be indy next year 19 wow and i know you probably can't say anything about it but yeah. what can you say about it i can say that Whatever it is, it's going to be really good. <laughs> but I, I don't know much, much beyond that. We're well, still working on the story and the script. I've been trying to figure out the time frame for this movie. Yeah. Okay, so uh, we're about 10 years on from Crystal Skull, which was... It, it'll, be in the, it'll be in the 60s. It'll it be, in, to be 60s. in the 60s, yeah. Okay, so I mentioned Paul McCartney earlier on. Mm-hmm. Could Indy meet the Beatles? I'm just, I'm just throwing it out there, Stephen. Listen, that's not the question. The question should be, would Indy even recognize the Beatles if he heard them? <laughs> Because he's, he's like in some bur- burrow somewhere, you know, digging up some sarcophagus. And I'm not sure he knows about um, music. We've never even explored Indy's love of music, except Johnny Williams. Yes. And that's about all Indy ever listens to. And he doesn't even get to hear it. The audience does. <laughs> well, I would hope if Indy does hear the Beatles, that he's not a horrible Beatles snob like Bond is in Goldfinger. I hope that he would embrace them. Well, if we ever induce the Beatles in the movie, I promise you, because I know Paul very well, and I promise you that he will love them. <laughs> if. All right. Excellent. I will hold you to that. Uh, legend of our lifetime, Steven Spielberg. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. This has been a great pleasure and a great honor today accepting this Empire oh, Award. Thank you. Thank you very much. And can I just finish by just uh, getting you to repeat what you told me when you came into the room, which is that I looked like a young... Yeah, yeah. Well, I said to you, when I met you t- t- this evening, I said... You look like a young Stanley Kubrick. Well, that's it. I'm retiring. I'm retiring to pursue a career in filmmaking because I think it's meant to be. It's meant to be. Stephen, thank you very much. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you. Okay, so that was me spieling with the Berg. And next week we will be discussing Ready Player One and we will be doing a Ready Player One spoiler special as well. So that is going to be out around April 3rd, maybe April 4th, just after the Easter holiday. Uh, and that's going to be with an interview with Ernest Klein, the screenwriter upon whose book the film is based, of course. So that's going to be a lot of fun. And hey, if you want special Empire Podcast episodes, uh, the latest edition of The Ranking is out where we discuss the films of Martin Scorsese. 
that is tied in with something you can also read about it in the magazine as well. And Helen, you and I, last week we talked for about an hour about a trailer. Uh, yeah. What was that again? It was Avengers Infinity War. Oh, yeah! You know the movie that's a sequel to Black Panther? That okay, was right. the, the, to... You've done it once, that's enough. I just want to see if I could do it again. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, if you if you like that sort of thing, check it out. If you don't like Marvel movies, that is not the podcast just avoid, for you. Just, like, just, run away. Just don't do it. Just get, get outraged, get indignant, go, I can't believe that they've done 45 minutes about a two and a half minute trailer. And just, oh, and that's fine. Just, totally fine. We're okay with that. We understand that. You, Some would say that you're entirely right and sensible to think so. Indeed. But, you know. It happened. It did. It's and, there. Yeah. There's nothing you can do about it. Nothing. Let's talk about uh, Steven Soderbergh's Unsane, which was shot on an iPhone. And uh, Helen, while you talk about that film, I'm going to shoot my own movie of you on an iPhone. Don't do this. This is not helpful to me. Uh, okay, so this stars Claire Foy as a woman called Sawyer. She is a victim of stalking. She has been stalked in the past and she has uprooted her entire life to move across country, but she is still having trouble dealing with the, the fallout. So she goes to see a counsellor about joining a new support group. Um, and in the course of their interview, she admits to having had suicidal thoughts in the past. Um, she signs all the paperwork to, to get involved in the support group and finds herself committed into uh, into custody, into a mental health institution um, on the basis that she is a danger to herself. Um, so this kind of starts off as an indictment of that system, the, the fact that the you know the American healthcare system will prey on those with insurance and kind yeah. of wring every last um, penny out of them that they can. Um, but it turns into something weirder and more psychological and more upsetting. So first of all, uh, there's the issue of what do you do in that situation? If you are a, a sane person, mm -hmm. you react exactly the same way that a paranoid, unsane person would. It, there is no other alternative. Everything that she does to try and get herself out of this predicament just makes her look more like she deserves to be in the, their care. Um, so it's a kind of a terrifying double catch-22, double-bind situation. It's really, really uh, scary that way. But what's worse is that Sawyer starts seeing her stalker mm -hmm. inside the hospital as one of the orderlies. So you know, she's very much at his mercy. It's her worst nightmare. And the question is, is she right? Can we trust her perception? Can mm -hmm. she trust her perception? Is mm -hmm. this happening at all? Is it due to the massive drugs of massive massive doses of drugs they put her on? What is happening? So it's a really unsettling film. I think it tries to do maybe too much because I think there's a, there's a there's a criticism of the healthcare system and there's a criticism of you know the use of drugs and there's a criticism of various things going on which I think are ultimately are maybe not the meat of the story so it's a little bit unfocused that way yeah but it has so much energy and I think uh, you know Soderbergh takes himself really back to basics he kind of wanted to shoot it like a student film was his was his approach and you know Foy did her own hair and makeup you know he shot it all on an iPhone they had an absolutely skeletal crew and it kind of gives Gives it that sort of energy and that sort of almost desperate freshness that you get with, you know, a, a bunch of kids making their first film. And mm. I think that really plays into the kind of uh, on on her uppers nature of, of Sawyer's predicament. And I think that really, really worked for me. So it's I don't think it's perfect or anything, but it's a really tense unsettling, skin-crawling situation of a film and, and it, it really pretty much worked for me. 
Yeah, I I really liked the first hour of this. I thought it had a really, really strong setup. And like you said, that she does the things that you would do in that situation. It it had that feeling of almost like an anxiety dream where yeah. everything you do to try and get yourself out of the situation just makes it worse. Um, I wasn't as keen on the last kind of half hour, 40 minutes. Um, towards the end, it becomes a bit more of a two-hander. Um, and one of the one of those hands, um, I wasn't massively impressed by their performance, and it was made worse for me by the fact that Claire Foy, I think, is incredible in this. She she's utterly believable. Her kind of panic, her desperation, her plotting to try and get out of the situation. Um, yeah, I, I would have preferred it if it had followed in the same vein as the first hour or so. But overall, um, it was it was much more tense and upsetting than I thought it was going to be in in a good way. Yeah, I would go with that as well. Um, I thought Claire Foy is fantastic in this. Uh, I think the, the being shot on an iPhone took me out of the movie a couple of times because I was wondering about what sort of rig he had and how he was getting sound <laughs> that good. Genuinely, I was going, how's the sound this good? But of course, he's not the first person to shoot a movie on an iPhone. No. Uh, and I know. I, I saw the, the rig that Sean Baker used for Tangerine, for example. It's a pretty damn good rig. Uh, and it's pretty inspirational. If you're a filmmaker, if you're a budding filmmaker, and you look at this and go, "Well, I can't make a film," of course you can, because you got the means right, right there, yeah. holding it in your hand right now. But also, I think the Soderbergh can be at times a dispassionate filmmaker, uh, a detached filmmaker emotionally, and I think sometimes that remove means that it, the film didn't grip me in the way that it perhaps should have done. But maybe that's just me. But I still liked it a lot. And I still say that a lesser Soderbergh is better than most directors at the top of their game. And it's good to have him back. Also, there's a bus currently going around London that has the, um, it's supposed to have a billboard for Unsane on it. And they've put two of the panels on at the start of the bus. So it says Unsane. It's another I Franken ranking situation. So keep an eye out for that if you're in London. Awesome. I just saw Macbeth the other night. Maybe it's a tribute to Burnham Wood coming to High Dunsinane. And son, You say, like we said, highbrow tastes. On the <laughs> so highbrow. So four stars then for Steven Soderbergh's Unsane, and then next up we have Pacific Rim Uprising, in which those dastardly kaiju are back, or are they? <gasps> yes. Yeah, otherwise it'd be a really dull film. Uh, so giant no, robots. It would, well, it'd be still giant robots. Yeah, but they'd just be standing around doing nothing. Yeah, fair They didn't have any kaiju to fight. So this is uh, 10 years on from Guillermo del Toro's original. Guillermo del Toro, not back for this one, along with Charlie Hunnam. He's not back either. Who else? Idris Elba, he died the last one. So what's this one about, Ben? It is about giant robots waiting around for new giant monsters to come uh, crawling out of the cracks of the earth under the sea. But there are some interesting twists this time around on... um, on how and why the kaiju are back. Um, so we follow uh, John Boyega as Jake Pentecost, the son of Idris Elba's character, Stacker Pentecost, from the first film. Uh, and he uh, was kind of growing up to become a Jaeger pilot, but grew disinterested in that life, uh, became a bit of a tear away, has been living it up on a beach uh, with... There's some really nice shots at the beginning, actually, of, of him kind of partying on a beach with a giant kaiju skeleton uh, still washed up on the sand. Uh, but he becomes recruited once again uh, when he is caught out alongside newcomer Kaylee Spaney um, playing Amara, who is uh, a young, aspiring... Uh, Jaeger mechanic and wannabe pilot. Uh, the the two of them get sent off uh, to become to to join the Jaeger team to join a young team of Jaeger pilots. Uh, and what would you know? Just as they're kind of brought together, there happens to be a new kaiju attack. Ten years. No. Ago. No. 
Um, so I thought this was a lot of fun. I'm one, one of the people who actually really likes the first one. Um, I l- loved the tone of what um, Guillermo was going for with that kind of partial 90s breakfast cartoon. Everything's brash, everything's loud. Um, everyone has a ridiculous name like Stack of Pentecost or Hannibal Chow. This one has less of the kind of mythical uh, vibe to it, that, that kind of grand vision that Guillermo had of these gigantic robots walking in slow motion through the sea on a stormy night ready to do battle with these fierce creatures from the deep it has less of that um kind of fantasy element in a way but it really dials in on the on the 90s breakfast cartoon rock'em sock'em robots fighting gigantic horrible lizards and like i said it has some really interesting and fun twists that i didn't see coming if if you were somebody kind of like me who was like great you're going to do a sequel but why are you bringing back burn gorman and why are you bringing back um charlie day actually some of those um returning factors have uh, have some pleasantly weird twists to them yes indeed it goes in directions i didn't quite expect yeah it does the, the plot actually managed to surprise me which is no mean feat for a yeah. film that's mostly about giant robots hitting yeah. things but i tell you the film that this reminded me most of mm-hmm. and it doesn't get anywhere close obviously to the artistry or the sheer thrill, I'd say, of watching it, is Fast Five. Which, as well, we maybe. both know, is the greatest film ever made. Yes, of course. And I still remember watching that film for the first time <laughs> with you. Yeah. And we were just high-fiving every five seconds. We were, and two people were sitting in between us in the yes. cinema. We did have to reach across those people. They weren't happy. <laughs> but, they were yeah. happy. They were watching Fast Five <laughs> for the first time. Uh, what I mean is that this movie remind it. It takes a leap in a way that I think Fast Five did mm-hmm. uh, into the the realms of the truly ludicrous, the realms of the truly over the top. Tongue buried in its big old kaiju cheek. Uh, it doesn't take itself seriously at all. And I always felt that with Pacific Rim, which I, I I like, I like the first Pacific Rim, but I think it's probably the least successful of Guillermo del Toro's recent run of movies. Uh, I always felt that even though he was very much the driving force behind that movie, that the two halves of, of Guillermo uh, that I, I have perceived, <laughs> that I have perceived because I have insight, you know, the, the blockbuster guy, yeah, uh, the pulpy famous Monsters of Filmland loving guy, uh, the horror geek guy, the genre guy. And then there's the the now Oscar-winning serious artist guy who has things to say. And I don't think that those two halves really meshed successfully, I would say, in Pacific Rim. So Guillermo has departed, which I'm sure he's kicking himself about. You know, he'll be <laughs> poking himself in the eye with both his Oscars, going, why did I direct The Shape of Water instead? And then comes Stephen Esty Knight, who I think is less preoccupied with making with subtext and making lofty statements, and he's more interested in amping up the daftness of this movie. Yeah, and the excitement and the adventure. I think, in fairness, yes. it's got a different um, energy, hasn't it, to the first one? I think. Well, I think that the first one is one of those films that spends so long world building. So it's like I used to go to my friend Neve's house, and we would spend literally like forty-five minutes tidying her went her Cindy house so that we could then play with the dolls. But like by the time we were done tidying, you know, the parents would have finished having their tea or whatever and it'd be time for me to go home. So we never got to play with it. And and I feel like there was a bit of that in Pacific Rim. There was so much world building, so much establishing who's who, what's what, why is all of this happening, that there wasn't enough time to have fun with it. So apart mm. from the Hong Kong sequence, which remains untouchable and is just fantastic... 
the film didn't always deliver that hit of excitement and thrill that we wanted. And I think this one comes a bit closer to that, even though, as you say, you know, certainly in the second half, all characterization, all subtlety falls completely by the wayside. You don't really mind. And we, we haven't really mentioned that uh, John Boyega, who oh, is so good. so good in this, so charismatic. He's having so much fun. And I think he sets the tone for the rest of the cast. And Kaylee Spaney really, really stepping up as more than an annoying child sidekick. Um, Scott Eastwood playing off the fact that he's like ludicrously handsome and sounds like his dad it just kind of it works the dynamic really really works and it doesn't take a lot of setup to make it happen which I think is good so yeah we give it three stars mm-hmm. okay then so three stars for Pacific Rim Uprising and let's bring this bad boy home with A Wrinkle in Time which is Ava DuVernay's uh, adaptation of the beloved children's book that I is so beloved I had never heard of it but you <laughs> had Helen you, you've read this and it's, yeah, it's four, all- four brothers and sisters there's, uh, I think there's five, five in, in the family in total, yeah. yeah. Um, but some of them are jettisoned here, and rightly, because they have no no role in the plot of the uh, certainly the first book. Um, but Madeleine Langell's Wrinkle in Time is a classic, and it has been around for quite some time. Um, but it's a weird book. It's a difficult book to adapt, because it's actually quite light on plot. Um, however, it is about Meg, who's played here by the fantastic Storm Reid. And she is a very gifted, very bright 13-year-old girl who's, who's become withdrawn, difficult, uh, you know, bad-tempered, um, because four years before her father, who's played by Chris Pine, disappeared. Um, and no one knows where he's gone. She's taunted sometimes that he's left her, that he's left the family. She wonders what she did to drive him away. Um, her her baby brother, um, Charles uh, Charles Wallace, um, is has never really known him at all. Um, but Meg is kind of left isolated um, until that is a, a very odd lady called Mrs. Watsit um, played by Reese Witherspoon turns up and um, she tells them that he isn't dead um, and he, he hasn't just left them he is uh, stranded across the universe after stepping through a wrinkle in time after tessering as in tesseract across hmm. the universe um, and Mrs. Watsit uh, Mrs. Who and Mrs. Witch played by Mindy Calling and Oprah Winfrey uh, take Meg and Charles Wallace and their friend Calvin across the universe to try and find and rescue him. Yes, and all kicks off from there. Basically, yes. Yeah, I mean, for, for me, um, there are chunks of this that worked and chunks that um, that didn't work so well for me. Um, I really enjoyed the opening kind of 15, 20 minutes or so, um, where it's, it's very grounded and it's setting up Meg's uh, life and the kind of emotional withdrawal that she's going through because of uh, the loss of her dad. Um, I thought that setup was was really engaging, um, and then when the fantasy kicks in, boy does it kick in! It, it's kind of full on day glow. Um planets halfway across the universe mm. and gigantic bejeweled Oprah standing in uh, Meg's back garden which I admired some of the kind of swinging for the fences nature of that uh, but it didn't entirely connect with me um, there's probably about 45 minutes or so of just more whimsical fantasy adventure um, with Meg and uh, and Calvin and Charles Wallace uh, venturing across the universe discovering uh, these bizarre new worlds that they've never seen before uh, where it kind of dragged a little bit for me but then about halfway through uh, they introduced the idea of the it which is this sort of malicious force which is spreading across the galaxy uh, and that Meg will have to defeat it if she hopes to try and rescue her dad um, and when there was that element of, of danger of stakes involved um, I thought it became quite a bit more engaging 
and uh, I think it really helped that Storm Reed, who is a, a newcomer, she she's in the lead role. Um, she is so so good in this. Yeah. She she sells the emotion. She sells the wonder. She sells the frustration that Meg feels back on Earth. Um, and this journey of kind of learning to accept herself and um, and kind of embrace her flaws and celebrate her flaws and celebrate the things that are amazing about her. Um, she sells that every single step of the way. Yeah, she does. It's, it's a, like I said, it's a very strange book. Very little in mm. the way of plot. None of it does, you know, kick in until the last sort of twenty twenty five minutes. Mm. Um, and so there is this section in the middle which is almost just admiring its own prettiness. Um, yeah. But I do think that might work with kids. I think that that sort of you know just slightly mind blowing visuals might might work with the target audience in a way it doesn't work with us. And I hope it does because I think this is a film that deserves to be seen and deserves to be. You know, uh, to inspire people, basically, which I think is what what it's very much meant to do. So I hope it, it, that it connects with you know the people it's made for. Yeah, I think not in a disparaging or condescending way at all, but compared to some of the other like Disney family adventures that have been around the last few years, this one skews a little bit younger. I think it's it's one that is is for the kids. It's it's kind of imaginative and colourful, and um, I think it will stoke kids' imaginations um, in a way that if this is one of your first trips to the cinema um, to go and see a sort of big like fancy blockbuster, I think it will stick in a lot of people's minds um, yes. growing up. Indeed. Uh, I enjoyed a lot about this movie. I thought it wasn't wholly successful. I think that's why we gave it three stars. But uh, Storm Reed is certainly one to watch. Yeah. Uh, it, it got me unexpectedly in the feels uh, towards the end. It's got a pretty universal theme in that respect. Um, and yeah, not bad. Not bad. Bonus uh, points from me as well for Mindy Kaling quoting Outcast and Lin-Manuel Miranda during her screen time. That was a, that was two ticks in, in my book. I'm surprised then, Helen, you haven't given it five stars for quoting Lin-Manuel Miranda. Obviously, I was very tempted. I mean, if Lin-Manuel Miranda had been in it, then sure. <laughs> You are not throwing away your shot. Uh, but there we go. Three stars in for A Wrinkle in Time. Uh, and that is it for this week's Empire Podcast, uh, brought to you, of course, by Rakuten TV. Uh, join us next week for more film-related fun. We'll be joined by Leslie Mann, star of the comedy Blockers. Which is really funny. And also the writer, director and star of Journeyman. Mr. Paddy Considine, who was our very first guest back in the very first episode of this podcast way back in 2012. Hasn't been on since. Really? But, uh, yeah, hasn't been on Good since. Good Lord. So there you go. So uh, appearance number two for Paddy uh, next week. And that's a very interesting interview as well. Anyway, until the auspicious occasion, it is goodbye from Helen. Totally. It is goodbye from Ben. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me. I'm off to upload my new 25-second video of Helen O'Hara reviewing Unsane Good Lord. to the IMDb, and I think I will automatically qualify for an Oscar. I don't think that's how Oscars work. I think that's pretty much how Oscars work. Also, if I soundtrack it with, call me by your name, then I will no. win Best Original Song as well. Could be the first time in Oscar history that... Uh, A completed incompetence is one has best won Best Song. I don't think that's true at all. Do you? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we'll see. We'll see. There we go. Uh, thank you so much for listening, and uh, see you next week. Bye. 